0: What's up, church? Hey, we're grateful to have you guys here, and uh, we are beginning a new series uh, called "Take a Vow." Now, the the uh, video that you just saw might remind you of something at home, uh, but the the thing is, is that every single one of us, at some point in our lives, have taken some sort of vow. Not necessarily all of us in here have taken the the wedding vow, but there's been vows, there's been promises. Uh, that we've made in our life. Matter of fact, I remember the vow that uh, I made to my wife. Uh, it was uh, May 18th of 2002 uh, that uh, Kelly and I finally, I guess, in a sense, tied the knot, right? Uh, we had actually dated in college. I was playing college football. She was a dancer and uh, for the drill team at our school. <laughs> um, and so, uh, but we met and... Uh, God brought us together, we had uh, similar families, uh, and eventually after uh, being together and dating for a couple of years, we got married. And I remember that day, like I remember the anticipation of that day, I remember uh, sending out all of the, uh, the, uh, the notes and the invitations and all that thing, and I remember even now like how, you know specific all of those were, and like I could just see it in my mind, I can see the preparations, I can see all that, but it was all for this final consummation, it was for this final feast, this wedding that was going to take place, it was a union of her family and our family coming together and becoming one flesh, and it was exciting, it was nerve-wracking, uh, you had all the planning, all the preparation, in which you're just like, if I can finally, like we can survive just the engagement period, then surely we can survive marriage right because there's all of this stuff that's going on and I just remember that day that the doors you know just flying open in the back of the church and I can remember all the people uh, standing and all of them are staring at her and all eyes are on her including mine and like I'm 21 years old I have no I have no concept of marriage okay Uh, I knew she was pretty and that I loved her right and uh, I had no idea of how to treat a wife. I had no idea of what God really was requiring me of a, uh, from me as a man. I had no money. Uh, but, hey, all we needed was love, right? And so we got married. And uh, I'll tell you, I think both of us would admit that our marriage has never been perfect, that we've made many mistakes, that we've said things that we shouldn't have said, that we've done things that we shouldn't have done. But the one thing I do remember is the commitment that I made to her, the vows that we said. And, you know, as you, you, know, you talk about in sickness and in health, you know, for us it was for poor or poor. I mean, we never had anything, you know. And, uh, but the bottom line is we just made a commitment. And over the years we just decided that we were going to stick it out. And my hope today is that you would see really what a marriage covenant is. And that you would be able to look back and reminisce and reflect on your relationship. And I know that there's many people in here that um, that you look back and, and maybe you are in. Uh, a a second marriage, or that you go, man, I'm not in a marriage, or maybe your marriage is is really difficult right now. The the process of today is simply to give you the proper foundation of what a marriage looks like. And I don't want to give you the the thought process on on my marriage, because if you model yourself after my marriage, then it's not always going to be healthy. So I want to model ourselves after the marriage of Jesus Christ. And you're like, what does that even look like? Well, I'm glad you asked because today we're going to dive into it. And this is literally the foundational steps of being able to build on from here. We're going to spend five weeks on this series called Take a Vow. And today I would say, I would argue that it's going to be the most uh, influential and it is the foundation of every step we'll take. Now, I'll tell you also that I don't believe today is necessarily the most practical. I don't think you're going to leave out of here today with three steps and three tools to start working on your marriage. But I'll tell you, if you get this concept of marriage... I don't know how you could walk away today unchanged. And so my prayer is is that God would just speak to our hearts and our lives. Okay? And so let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the marriage that you have given to us, the church, people who love you and have followed you. And Father, I pray today that as we dive into your word that you would just, Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, that you would penetrate the very depths of our hearts, the very core Uh, the very foundation of our relationships. And Father, uh, Lord, whether we're married or not, Lord, whether we're single, whether we're just young students in here, Lord, every single one of us can glean some truth from today. And so, Lord, give us a proper perspective. Help us to know that we don't have to be in a, a wedding relationship or a marriage relationship for this to matter. But, Lord, that it's all about how you view us and how we should view you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, I do want to go on record before we dive in, and I do want you to know that we have an incredible kids ministry. It's called Stone Point Kids. It's taking place right now. And the only reason I tell you that is because there are some parents um, that I I want to strongly consider, uh, have you consider taking advantage of that in the next few weeks. Why? Because we're going to talk about some things that are uh, PG-13 in the next few weeks. And you're like, oh, seriously? How awkward is that going to be? Well, let me just tell you, it's a lot more awkward for me because my parents actually go to this church, okay? <laughs> uh, but it's in the Bible, and uh, we need to discuss it because we need to live healthier lives. And so uh, we're going to be doing that. And so just uh, we're putting it in your court. You do whatever you want. If you want your 9-year-old to learn about marriage and all that comes with it, then, hey, that is your prerogative. Uh, but my, pa- uh, my kids are going to be checked into to Kids, okay? So... <clears throat> Uh, we're going to start in Revelation chapter nine, uh, nineteen verses seven through nine. Now if, if you've ever uh, if you've ever been uh, to, to church and you talk about marriage, I'll tell you I don't think that the very first thing that you're ever going to talk about is Revelation chapter 19. like that's not the text that you were thinking today when you came in to talk about marriage. but I want you to see, What was said, and uh, John's giving this picture, uh, Revelation chapter 19, 7 through 9. It says, let us rejoice and be glad and give him, what, glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean. And then we don't even have to guess, like, what is fine linen? What is bright and clean? Because he says, fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. And the angel said to me, Write this Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, These are the true words of what? God. See, this right here is the final culmination of our relationship with God. Like, this is the day that all of us should be waiting for. This is the day that all of us should be in expectation for. It is the final wedding feast of the Lamb. It's the time where we look and we dine with the Lord, that we dine with other believers, and we literally sit and enjoy the banquet table of the Lord together. It's the time where we no longer just pray for hope because hope is in our presence. It's no longer the time where we want to receive mercy or that we get down on our knees and we pray that God's kingdom will come because the kingdom had arrived and hope had come and mercy had come and we live among the presence of the Lord. It is the wedding feast. It is us drinking and being married together. It is the eternal kingdom of God that has been set up and it has come and that's what we all long for. Now, what's interesting is that we all long for that, but we're in another period of our life right now that you and I have kind of missed. Like, we just think that God's sent his son, and his name is Jesus, and he's died on the cross for us, and that's great. And we have this relationship with him, and we're just going to kind of live as best as we can on this earth, and hopefully one day we'll spend eternity with him. And there are some of us in here who we have doubts as to whether or not eternity is really, is that really real? Is this all really true? Let me just kind of give you the picture of what marriage is and why God created marriage. The reason that he created the ordination of marriage, why he gave us this picture of vows and commitment and covenant. Why did he do that? And see, you look at it from your cultural perspective. You look at it from what you've known. You you date someone. You see if if you match. Oftentimes it means that we even go to the limits uh, of passing impurity just to make sure we're compatible. We might get engaged. We may do that for a little while. Eventually we enter into marriage, and marriage we continue that process until what? We hit some bumps along the road. And at that point we try to make it work, but if it doesn't work, then sometimes we get out of it. And I want you to see, like, the covenant relationship that God's intended for us to keep. And it only is seen if you understand a Jewish wedding. And it's only seen if you understand that the Jewish wedding is actually the picture of something better to come. And so, like, here's the question. Like, maybe you're here and you're like, you have your doubts about marriage. Maybe you're here, you have your doubts about a relationship with God. Like, you may be here and you may wonder, "Eh, is, is all this really real? Is this really all true? My prayer is that you would see this picture, this pattern of what God's done for us, and that you would walk out of here and that you would be a changed man or woman simply because of the picture of marriage from God. Let me explain it to you. In the Jewish culture, here's what would happen. A a man's family, the bridegroom's family would go, and it was his parents that would go and they would actually select a bride, and they would find someone to match up their son with. Matter of fact, you see in the account of Genesis uh, 24, if you remember, there was a guy named Abraham. He's the father of the nation of Israel. God chose him and used him for great things, and he was getting very up in age. Matter of fact, in chapter 23, his wife Sarah had died and passed away, and he still had a son named Isaac, had never been married. And one of the things that Abraham said to his servant, Eliza, he said, Eliza, I want you to put your hand on my thigh, and I want you... You're like, what? Put your hand on your thigh. That's awkward. He goes, Yeah, they were that good of friends. And they were actually and in some ways business partners. And if if they would have never had a son, Isaac, then Eliza would have probably inherited everything that Abraham had. But he said, Eliza, I want you to promise me that you'll go to a land and that you'll find a bride for my son, one that's suitable. One that's you know from my former land that you will go and that you will make sure that not only is she well respected but that she'll be the perfect fit for my son Isaac, and Eliezer gets and going and he goes and he uh, finally finds this lady named Rebecca, and here's what's interesting is Eliezer is almost in a simple uh, in a way it's called typico prophetic it's it's a way that you would look back and you go it's in in a sense prophecy even in Genesis 24. Eliezer went, and he went, and he pursued this bride and asked her to come and be a part of this new family. And he, he made a proposal to her, and Eliezer, in a sense, is what the Holy Spirit does for all of us. He comes, and he woos us, he courts us, and he encourages us to come to a new family. What's interesting is, Eliezer, his name actually meant comforter, which is the Holy Spirit, who is what? The comforter for us. And so Eliza goes and he gets Rebecca and Rebecca uh, has this new proposal in front of her. And essentially they pick her, they choose her, and then they say, Rebecca, will you accept it? Will you trust us enough to follow our direction?" And she agrees. And upon her agreement, they entered into this covenant relationship in the Jewish custom called a betrothal. They were betrothed together, meaning that they were committed and they were joined together. And it was a contract um, that was signed, but it's actually not like our engagement contract. It was what? A covenant. And it was a covenant agreement that was binding. And the only way that you got out of a betrothal was actually file for divorce. See, like for us, like if we're engaged, we can go all the way up to about three weeks, you know, before we can, you know, just scrap all the invitations, send an email out to everybody, send all the toasters and everything else back, you know what I'm talking about? And we can go, hey, I can't marry this crazy gal, okay? Uh, And that's the thing is you can do that. In a betrothal, it's not like that. The offer's been made. Upon acceptance, you enter into betrothal, and then get this. There's a dowry that's paid. There's a payment that's set up, and they're paid, and then that woman decides that she'll come and be a part of that family. Now, here's what's interesting. Upon the acceptance of the proposal, the betrothal part that's met, then there becomes some obligations on both families. You've got the bride side, and the father of the bride has one job, and that's to make sure that he gets his daughter ready, that she... Remains pure, and that she's ready for the wedding feast. That she's not going out, and she's not hanging out with other guys, and she's not doing a lot of different things. In a sense, that even in that contract period, as they're getting ready for the wedding feast, that she stays what in tune to where she is supposed to be. And so he takes her and he veils her. He adds some sleeves to her arms where uh, she's protected and covered. And that's his job is to make sure that she's ready, dressed with fine linen, ready for the. of the arrival, the expectation the bridegroom will come. Now what's interesting is is that on the groom's side, what does he have to do? He has to get ready for this thing. And so he goes and he adds on to his father's house and he begins to make a room or even two for his wife to come to. And that's all he does, day in, day out, night in, night out, he's preparing this room for his new bride. Now, here's what's interesting. She's remaining pure, white as snow, making sure that she's not giving herself to anyone else. She is waiting on her soon-to-be husband, soon-to-be bridegroom to come, and get this, she doesn't know when it's going to happen. Like, you and I, we send out invitations. I can remember May 18th at 2 o'clock, y'all are better, you better be there. The, the best party's going to happen afterwards, right? And you're like, come, we want you to be a part of that day. Here... They didn't send out invitations. They didn't know when the wedding feast would begin because it only begins promptly after the bridegroom's finished repairing the home. He'll come. It could be in the middle of the day. It could be in the middle of the night. But she gets up every day in expectation that what? The bridegroom's coming. And so every day she gets up. She prepares herself as if that's going to be the day. Every day she gets up. She prepares herself and she plans as if that's going to be the day. And then one day the bridegroom is actually going to come. And you can see it the bridegroom comes and he comes over the hills and he's got all his buddies there and they just begin to shout and they begin to ring the bell he's here he's here and all the bride can do is get with all her maidens and what do they do they just get excited you know what I'm talking about they get a little giddy you know They start throwing on everything, makeup. They go to the hope chest, and they get her dress, and they pull it out. And this is a dress that's been passed down from generation to generation. They begin to adorn her. They get her ready. She's a beautiful bride. She's dressed in a white linen that's pure and it's ready. And she's going to, what, be ready for the bridegroom. Now, now here's the only difference, Okay. And I don't know where this changed and and, and honestly guys, wouldn't it have been nice if it didn't? I mean, in our in our wedding the doors throw open and all eyes go on the bride, right? They could really care less if the bridegroom arrives at all. You know what I'm talking about? Like, we better be there, but they don't care how we get there. You know what I'm saying? And they don't care if we come in from the right or the left. We do not They don't care if we have five grooms in or if we have two grooms in. They don't care. We just better be standing there. But they do care about what? Her dress. They care about what she's wearing. They want to see her necklace. They want to see her ring. They want to see how great she looks when the veil's taken off. And you're like, man, can I get a little credit? You know, I mean, come on. But see, the difference in the Jewish custom is actually flipped. She is the one waiting at the altar, and the bridegroom is coming. And everybody's expecting for him to come. And for the first time at the wedding feast, after all of this process, you've got the uh, proposal offer after the choosing. You have the acceptance. You have the betrothal period. You have her being kept pure. You have him preparing the house. They come in this final consummation, they are going to be one, and they're going to be there at the wedding feast and he's going to take his coat off and he's going to place it over her and he's going to say, you are mine. You are covered through my house. You're protected now and they're going to drink. And they're going to be married and in that wedding feast for the very first time, it's, it's seven days, okay, is about how long it would last. But they would actually consummate their union together during the wedding feast. Not in front of everybody, but they would go off and they would have some time. And the thing is, it was this final picture, the consummation of what a wedding feast in the Jewish custom looked like. Now what's interesting is, is that you hear all of that and you're intrigued by it. But the, the coolest thing about all of it is that this is actually the picture of the gospel for us. Let me show you what God has done for us through his son Jesus. The very first thing is this in Ephesians chapter 1 it says that God has chosen us before the beginning of the world. Before the foundation of the world is set he knew that you would be a son or a daughter of God. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 uh, verse 4 it says for we know brothers loved by God that he has chosen you and so in a sense, what God has done is he has come before every single one of us, and he, the, he is drawing us, he's wooing us, he's courting us through the Spirit of God. He wants a relationship with you. He sent his Son for you. He wants to know you and be known by you. He wants you one day to have the opportunity to be there at the wedding feast. But the thing is, is that not everybody gets to go to the wedding feast. The people that get to go to the wedding feast are the ones that God pursues and then they accept his proposal. And like there's this proposal that's put out on the table and, the, and God, even though he's drawing you through the Holy Spirit, you have an opportunity to say, no, I don't want that. I, I would rather go over here and I would rather marry the world. I, I would rather just continue to do what I'm doing. Or you have this opportunity to enter this betrothal commitment and covenant relationship with Jesus Christ. And upon that acceptance, get this, there's a payment made, isn't there? And God has made a full payment, a full ransom for you upon your acceptance of the betrothal period. And so God has pursued you through the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, who says, Come to me, and upon your acceptance of that that betrothal, there's a payment made on your name. And it's through the blood of Jesus Christ. Matter of fact, isn't that what John the Baptist says in John chapter 1, 29? Behold, the Lamb of God, he's come to take away the sins of the world. Isn't that exactly the picture that you get when you read 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20? And it says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You are what? Bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. See, Jesus Christ buys, though, those people who accept the betrothal offer. And as upon accepting that, then he seals you up and he makes sure that you are a part of his family. But get this. Isn't there still work to do? Like betrothal, there's this commitment to it. There's this covenant relationship. It's binding, but there's work ahead. Matter of fact, the betrothal, you know how serious it is because do you remember the story of Mary and Joseph in Matthew, you also see it in Luke chapter 2, that they were betrothed, that they were committed to each other. Do you remember what the problem was? In the betrothal period, what's the daughter to do? Remain pure? Well, that was Joseph's question. I thought that when we entered into the betrothal period, you were supposed to stay pure. How is it that you're pregnant? That doesn't make sense. And that's why the angel of the Lord appeared to him, because he had in mind to divorce her, is what the Scripture said. He was going to walk away from the marriage, and he was going to do it in a way that respected her. But the Holy Spirit and the angel of the Lord appeared and said, no, this is through the Spirit of God. But that's how serious the betrothal part was. The betrothal part is a covenant-binding relationship. What's interesting is, is then there's a job for us, because what are we? We're the bride of Christ. Jesus is the bridegroom waiting to receive his bride. And so what's the bride to do? To be protected, to be veiled. That's what God is wanting us to do. He's wanting us to continue to be kept in Jesus Christ, to be faithful to him. Like how many times has God pursued us, we've entered into this betrothal period, and then we go and we have an affair on the very God who gave the bridegroom for us. Like, that's how serious this deal is. It's not just this casual, if you accept Jesus, you just kind of get to go do your own thing and live your own life. And eventually, you'll be at the wedding feast. No, no, no. The wedding feast is prepared for people who are serious about following God. It's not for everyone. It's for those who will deny themselves, take up the cross, and follow Jesus. That's why I'm so against just this ABC prayer that you just simply pray and accept Jesus. No, no, it's about following, it's about Him accepting you. It's about you giving your life and following Him for the cause of Christ. And it's about what? Keeping yourself pure for the day of redemption. See, the question should not be asking, that we shouldn't be asking, is well, how far can I go to remain pure? Because that's not what a bride should ask. A bride doesn't say, well, what can I do? What am I justified to do in order to remain godly? No, the question is, is how do I prepare myself for the day and the coming of the bridegroom? That's the question. And so what? We're to be kept pure. In John chapter 17, Jesus says this. He says, Father, all mine are yours and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. He says, I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. So he says, it's about, it's about time that I give myself up. And I'm coming. I'm going to be back at the right hand of the Father. And then look what he says in verse 11. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. See, we're being kept by the Father. In John chapter 10, verses 28 and 29, Jesus says... My sheep hear me, and they know my voice. And he says, and I keep them in my hand. In verse 29, he says, and even the Father's hand is greater than mine, and I keep them, and I hold them. Nothing can snatch us out of what? The hand of Jesus or his Father's hand. Meaning, listen, it's not a question, is salvation secure? The question is, is are you going to be faithful in the midst of that? And here's what I want you to understand. If you have a struggle With faithfulness to God, I don't think the question is, is God failing to keep you? I'm wondering if you really understood the betrothal commitment. I'm wondering if you really ever gave your life to Jesus in the first place. Because we see that once sin has been redeemed for, we don't run back to it as the dog returns to its vomit. And I think that's the struggle in our culture. It's not that Jesus failed on the salvation end. It's that we failed to understand the betrothal commitment that we made to him. Because once you make, make a betrothal, then you keep your end of the bargain. You're being kept firm through Jesus Christ, through the blood sacrifice and what he's done. It's the exact same picture that we see of marriage in Ephesians chapter 5. You remember 25? 24 says, wives, submit to your husbands. And all of you get all like, Ooh, ugh, don't say that, Okay. It's out of context when you see that 25 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. But look at 26. This is the promise that we have from God to be kept. This is preparing for the wedding feast. He says in 26 that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the words, so that he might present her to the the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. That's what Jesus Christ has done for us. All of those things that you think, well, I had this spot that I couldn't get removed. And like you're doing spray and wash, you know what I'm talking about? No, God's blotted it out through the blood of the cross. All those wrinkles, all those things that you just feel like you can't iron out in your life. No, God's already redeemed though and he's keeping you. The question is though, are you going to continue to live faithfully for him? Are you going to understand that the betrothal means that you are waiting for the bridegroom to come? That's the struggle with the Christian faith. That's the struggle. That's why churches are dying. That's why pastors are quitting. That's why people are mean. That's why people walk out of here and they save a lot of space for other people is because they don't understand the commitment and the covenant relationship with Jesus Christ. It's not save me from the depths of hell and then I'll just live whatever I want to live. Betrothal is, here's my life and I'll follow you. God, keep me, make me pure, make me white as snow so that I'm ready for the day of redemption. And while we're being kept wide as snow, what is, what is the bridegroom doing? What has Jesus done? He's doing exactly what he said he would do in John chapter 14. This isn't new stuff. John chapter 14, Jesus says in verse 1, he says, Men, let your, not your hearts be troubled. He talks to his disciples, the guys who left everything to follow him. He says, Believe in God, believe, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you and I go, because I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'm going to come back and I'm going to take you to be with myself. That where I am, you may be also. And you will know the place where I'm going. Do you see what he's doing? The bridegroom right now is preparing a place for who? The bride. Isn't that exactly what he said he would do? Yes. Isn't that the picture of every marriage that's ever taken place in the Jewish custom? Yes. The faithful ones. And so he's away preparing a place. So what do we do? We chalk it all up to coincidence? We just say, oh, well, that's just, that's, that's just, you know, that's a good, clever little story there. That's awesome. I love the tie-in. No. Here's what I want you to imagine. You and I oftentimes make this world our playground, and God created it in six days, and he rested on seventh. Can you imagine what he's been doing over the last 2,000 years as he makes a place ready for his bride? How much more spectacular is it going to be than what we see? And if you don't, if you don't believe that oftentimes we're mesmerized by this world, you got another thing coming. And so can you imagine the glory and the splendor of being welcomed into the arms of Jesus Christ in the wedding feast? I mean, isn't that you think maybe why Paul says, wow, to be absent with the body, to be present with the Lord? Wow, I'm ready for that. He's like, you can take me now. I mean, don't be me wrong, Lord, if you need me to keep working, I will. But take me now. Like, we fear death. And why? Because it's going to be so much more spectacular because He's preparing a place for us and He wants us to receive us on that final culmination. And He goes, until that time, hey, be faithful because I'm preparing a place. I haven't let you down. Isn't that incredible? And then get this He's gone. And what is the bride doing? She's getting herself ready. She's staying pure. And she is waiting with expectation. And she does not know the hour, does she? Isn't that exactly what Paul said? You'll never know the hour. Isn't that what we we know that's going to come like a twinkle of the eye? That's exactly what you see. Matter of fact, in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus gives us an awesome picture in this parable of exactly what's going to happen. He says at the time of the kingdom of heaven, it'll be like 10 virgin. There's 10 pure virgin girls. And what are they doing? They're getting their themselves ready for the, the feast. And they take their lamps and they go out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them are foolish and five of them are wise. The foolish ones, they take their lamps, but they don't bring any oil with them. The wise ones, however, take oil in the jars along with their lamps. And the bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. And at midnight, the, what, cry rang out. Here's the bridegroom. Here he is. And all the little virgin boys are with the bridegroom, and they're saying, here he is. And it's this awesome thing, and everybody's excited about it. And the bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they become drowsy and then here he is and they they come out to meet him then get this all the virgins wake up and they trim their lamps and the foolish ones then say to the wise give us some oil our lamps are going out and five of the wise ones said no there may not be enough for both of us and you instead go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves but while they were on their way to buy oil the bridegroom arrived the virgins who were ready went with Him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. And then what? The others later came, and they say, Lord, Lord, open the door. Lord, open. We want to be a part of the feast. And he says, I never knew you. They weren't ready. They weren't expectant. They had not kept themselves anxiously awaiting the bridegroom to come. Jesus says that's the perfect picture. Matter of fact, Paul says uh, to the church in Corinth, he says, In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. He goes, he's coming. The bridegroom's on his way. Are you waiting faithfully? And then get this, when the bridegroom finally arrives, and he's here, then what happens? We are to go to the hope chest and we're to get out the dress and fine linen and we're to put it on and we're to anxiously await and and get ourselves prepared and that's exactly what the woman would do, right? And you're going, well, what in the world does that mean? Well, the thing is is that Paul gives us this picture and, and really here's what it is. It's an opportunity. It's called the judgment seat. It's different than the white throne judgment. At the end of the days, the wedding feast. Before all of that ever happens, you have the white throne judgment, and that's where God takes and He takes wheat and He puts it over here and He puts chaff over here. That's where He goes. There's going to be some with me with their eternal life. There's going to be others that are cast in the lake of fire. But the, the judgment seat is the question of what have you done? Have you lived faithfully? Matter of fact, Paul, uh, he, he addresses it a couple of ways to the church in, in Corinth because they don't always get it, and they're, they're really a troubled church. And so one of the things he says in 2 Corinthians 5, 6-10, he says, Therefore, we are always confident, and we know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please Him whether we are at home in the body or away from it. And verse 10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us must receive what is due for us, the things while we do in the body, whether good or bad. The best way I can explain it to you is this, is in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul gives the picture to the Corinthian church, and he says, Look, once you enter in the betrothal period with Jesus Christ, all of us, we have the foundation of the rock. You're no longer building your life on sinking sand. You have the foundation of the rock. The question is, what do you do from there? And there are some of us that right now in this life, we're building homes made of silver and gold. And, and they're, hey, when they're tested with the fire at the end of the days, man, they stand up. And they're proof positive. And you go, wow, that's awesome. Now, there's a lot of us that while we're sealed for the day of redemption, we're building our houses with stray and stubble and straw. And when the fire hits it, guess what? It's burned. And we kind of run out naked. You know what I'm talking about? We don't have a lot on. Let me explain it this way. Like, y'all remember graduation day? Some of you, yeah, yeah, some of us, yeah. (laughs) Well, there are a lot of you in here that, like, graduation day, whether it be high school or college, like, you walked across the stage, and, I mean, you had tassels, and you had extra garments, and you were in uh, honor clubs, and, I mean, you had all types of different things that people gave you. And, like, you walked across, and you had so many things hanging from you. They, I mean, you were the spectacle. You were the show. And everybody stand up, and they're just clapping for you. And, I mean, it's an exciting thing. They even let you talk. You know what I'm talking about? It was just an awesome day for you. You're like, yeah, I was kumai somebody, whatever whatever. whatever that is. I don't even know what that stuff is because I just graduated. You know what I'm talking about? Like my parents were praising Jesus that I actually got to walk across the stage. The most pivotal moment of that day was I actually got to move my tassel. You know what I'm talking about? And so like that's where I was and that's kind of where I come from in it. But like that's what the judgment seat of Christ is. It's basically an opportunity for him to adorn his bride they would put things on the dress and that they would say, here you go. And it was a spectacle of honor. There's going to be some of us that in this life, we're going to graduate with more honors than others. And that God's going to adorn us because we've been faithful and we've been more faithful than other people. It's not a condemnation period because what do we see in Romans 8? There is no condemnation in Jesus Christ. And so for the believer, you're sealed and you're protected but the bottom line is there's going to be a day where there's a conversation in which he says well done. Matter of fact, here's what I'm going to give you. And he gives you In a sense, some tassels and some honor because of what you've done for him in this life and get this after all of that's taken place he, he's chosen you he's made a proposal you accepted you entered into the betrothal commitment you've been faithful and white as snow you've been pure before the Lord he's gone to prepare a place for you he's come back you see him he's given you this incredible uh, garment fine linen white as snow as we see in Revelation chapter 8 the righteous acts of the saints he goes we've made it to the feast it's this final picture of our relationship with the Lord and all that we've been hoping for and dreaming for it is the, 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 the time of the streets of gold, it's the time of the no more tears, no more pain, no more sorrow. It's all of it. The culmination of the wedding feast is here. We drink and we're merry with the Lord. We are with him, and look, hope has arrived, peace has arrived, joy has arrived. We drink and we're merry with him, and we enjoy dining in the presence of the Lord, and we're married to him forever. See, one other thing that I want you to notice is that Jesus took that pretty seriously. And here's why. As he's dining with his disciples, this is what he does right before he goes to the cross. He takes what we know as what? The Lord's Supper. But look in Matthew chapter 26, 26-29. through 29, It says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread. And after blessing it, he broke it and he gave it to the disciples and said, Take and eat. This is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks to it, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. He goes, Here's my broken body. Here's the blood. Never forget that. Always remember that. And he wasn't trying to implement some sacrificial institution that if we don't do it, we're not remembering. It's the idea that everything we do is we're faithful. We're waiting for the bridegroom of Christ. And we're waiting and anticipating, not forgetting. Why? Because he hasn't forgotten us. Matter of fact, look what he says next. He says, I tell you, I will not drink of this cup again from the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it anew with you and what? My father's kingdom. He goes, I'm waiting for you. He says, I'm building, I'm preparing, and you can take it to, you can take the bet as soon as I'm done. Just as it was custom for a young lad to come back and receive his bride, he says, I'm coming back for you, and I'm going to receive you unto myself. And he said, And I'm waiting just as you're waiting to drink that cup and to enjoy it for all of eternity. Friends, the reason that I wanted you to see this is because that changes everything in marriage. Like, how many times have you been self-seeking and self-serving? How many times, not only have you been adulterous just in terms of your relationship with God, but it's, it's actually spewed in. Our adultery to God has actually changed the way we view our marriage. See, I'm convinced that healthy marriages actually come from healthy relationships with God. I'm convinced that men that lead their families are daily submitting and being led by Jesus Christ. I'm convinced that every problem in marriage actually comes back to this one little factor called sin. And the reason why is not because you're bad or your wife's bad. It's because we lose sight. And sometimes we become selfish. And we look, what, to the interest of our own needs and not to the interest of others. And so let me just kind of end it with this one thing. And this is my personal belief. And and you would have a struggle to convince me otherwise. If we model our marriages and our relationships the way that Christ modeled it for us, it would be far less about us and much more about meeting the needs of others. And see, the the thing is, is this. You want a great marriage? It begins with a relationship with Jesus Christ. It begins by accepting his offer of betrothal. And listen, if you've accepted the offer of betrothal, then I just commission you, start living in that. Quit running back to the playground of this world. Understand that he's preparing something far greater. And Jesus says, if you love this world, you don't love me. And it's very clear. Why? Because it's the fruit of righteousness. You either love him, you're either committed to him, or you don't love him, and you're committed to something else. The thing is this. It's not a matter of what you tell me. It's a matter of what comes out of you. It's called fruit. And Jesus says, if you're my bride, you'll what? You'll stay pure for me. You'll wait in expectation of my return. Honestly, let me ask you this last question. Don't you think if we grasp this, not just grasp it, but apply it to our lives and understand God's faithfulness to us, understand his loving kindness towards us, don't you think that it changes our marriage? Don't you honestly think that it changes our church? Don't you think that it changes our perspective of everything around us? Yes. The problem is is that we have taken the institute of marriage and we've corrupted it because of our own values and the way that we do things and it's become less about a covenant and more about contractual relationships. If it fits, I'll wear it. If it doesn't, I'll do something different. And that's not God's design. And so my prayer is that we'll take this and we'll build on it in the coming weeks. And that you'll remember that the greatest vow that you ever took is not the vow to your wife, but the vow to Jesus Christ. Because that vow changes every other vow. Not just with your wife, but every other relationship. It's what makes you a man of your word. It makes, it's what makes you a woman of integrity. It's what causes you to keep your eyes fixed on Jesus Christ. It's when you forsake that vow, The vow that's the most important vow, the vow that you made to God, is when everything in our life seems to come crashing down. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us to understand that you have covered us with the blood of Jesus Christ. And for those who accepted the proposal to be betrothed to you, to enter into that covenant relationship, Lord, you have given us hope and a future. And, Lord, it's not just in this life. And so, Lord, there's many of us in this room that we're pursuing love and riches in this life. And, Father, my prayer is is that we would quit looking at things in this life. Matter of fact, I pray that every single one of us would realize that we don't have a soulmate in this life on earth, that our soulmate is you. And then when we understand that, it allows us to have a proper perspective and identity in every other relationship. And so may we take this vow seriously. May we realize that you've chosen us, that you called us, just as the lies are called Rebecca, your Holy Spirit's called us to you. Lord, that we accepted, that, Lord, we had a payment, a blood sacrifice made so that we could enter into the presence of God one day. Lord, that we would be able to be made right before you, Lord, but until then, while you're there preparing a place, as we're waiting for your return, may we be pure, may we (coughs) be white as snow. Lord, may we prepare our hearts as if you were coming today. We love you, and I pray that this changes us. In Jesus' name, amen.